Well, good morning, everyone. Privilege to be opening up. Sign me up for the program. That sounds great. That's what I was going to say. Sydney Harbour, living the good life. Wonderful. Well, if you're visiting, my name is Brendan. I'm one of the pastors here. A warm welcome to you if you're a guest. Uh, we're in the middle of a series on Luke's Gospel. And this morning we're really on holy ground. We're looking at one of the most precious and moving passages in the whole Bible. Uh, if you have your Bible there, you can open them up to Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Uh, this morning we are looking at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He pours out his heart. You know, this passage, it really gives us insight into the mind of Jesus. His mindset and the meaning of the cross more than nearly any other passage in the whole Bible. Uh, If you're here today, you wouldn't normally describe yourself as a Christian or perhaps you would say you're a cultural Christian or maybe a a nominal or not over the top Christian. I mean, we want to welcome you this morning. Thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning. But if that's you, the claims of Christianity can be really confusing, can't they? So confusing. It's all centered around Jesus Christ and him dying on a cross, which we celebrate at Easter. But doesn't that strike you as an odd thing to celebrate? I remember many years ago being puzzled by the cross and and Jesus died, achieved anything. I wonder if you've also wondered that before. Hundreds of thousands have been crucified over history and it's incredibly brutal but what makes the death of Jesus different? Why was he so troubled by it? Well today's passage we get a behind the scenes look at what was taking place on the cross and we get to see the heart of Jesus in a truly unique way. We get to see the human and divine knit together in what is a beautiful and mysterious way. So why don't you join with me as we read God's word this morning together and then pray for the preaching of God's word. Luke chapter 22, verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing... Up from me. Not my will, but yours be done. And appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed. 
more earnestly. And his sweat came like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas. One of the twelve was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for the privilege of getting a glimpse, just a glimpse of this moment in your word. When the holy, majestic son of God, son of man would embrace the task that you had given him. Look, God, I pray that in and through the preaching of this word with my weak voice, you would send your Holy Spirit to change our hearts as we look onto Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, I want to begin our time together with a question for you to consider. And the question is this. What is the worst thing that has ever happened to you? I want you to think on that for just a moment. What is the worst thing in your life that has ever happened to you? Now, the truth is that in life, suffering is absolutely unavoidable. It's just a matter of time. At every dinner table, there is one person sitting who will watch Every other person die. You know, over the years, I've personally been through very little suffering. But as a pastor, I've watched on as many, many others have suffered. I've watched as marriages break down. I've watched as chronic illness strikes. I've watched babies die. I've watched loved ones go through great suffering. You know, one story that comes to mind is our neighbors in Waitara who had moved over from Germany to be close to their grandchildren. They had a son who was in their, in his 40s and suddenly was experiencing leg pain. Uh, he ended up, as he went to hospital and scans and tests were performed, it ended up being something quite sinister. And some months later, he died. 
And that family suddenly became a family with a single mum and two primary school age kids. And they were absolutely devastated by what took place. It was so hard watching them grieve for the loss of their son. It's true that in a broken world, suffering is unavoidable. You simply need to live long enough to see it. And no one needs convincing that suffering is real in our world, do they? It's absolutely everywhere on TV. But it's also true that not all suffering is equal. And by this, I don't simply mean that we won't all suffer equally in life, that that's true. But that there is one whose suffering eclipses all other suffering. See, the Bible teaches that what Jesus suffered was the greatest human suffering that ever was or ever will be. And to understand how that is even possible, we're going to spend some time together unpacking this passage of Scripture from God's Holy Word. If you're taking notes this morning, I've entitled this message, The Hour and the Power of Darkness. We've got two points that come from our text, but a real hope for our time together this morning, which is that we would experience a sense of gratitude for our Lord Jesus as we watch him plunge into darkness for us. That's that's the hope that will come uh, from this passage. I believe it's the burden of this passage that we'd look at Jesus and be grateful for him in what he does for us. So let's dive right in this morning with point number one from our passage, which is simply the agony of our Lord. You know, if you're new to this series, Jesus is in the final night of his life before the cross. It's Thursday evening. The supper is now over and Jesus has finished instructing his disciples in the upper room. He had warned them to abide in him like branches on a vine. He had warned them about coming persecution that they would experience. And he'd prayed. He'd prayed for himself that he might glorify his father in this coming ordeal. And he'd prayed for his disciples that they might be faithful and kept together and stay following his words. And they probably sang some sort of hymn together before heading out into the streets of Jerusalem. And you can imagine it softly lit by the Passover full moon in the middle of the night. And you can imagine it being quiet on the streets in the still of the night as they walk across the city and climb the Mount of Olives and turn off into an olive orchard called Gethsemane, which means olive press. And we pick up our passage in verse 39 of chapter 22. It says the following. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. See, the Lord Jesus in these final moments before his crucifixion, he wasn't hiding in fear. It was his custom to come to this place, to Gethsemane. John records that he frequently met his disciples here. They were familiar with the place. But Jesus sees this critical moment they now face a great danger and so he instructs them to pray that you might not enter into or succumb to temptation i guess the obvious question is what is this temptation that they face 
On the one hand, it seems to be the temptation to fail to support Jesus in his time of need through prayer. And yet they're exhausted by grief, we read in verse 45. You know, if you've ever been in an intensely stressful situation, sometimes you feel, or maybe it's just me, I'm crazy, I feel, I just need to go to bed, I just need to sleep, I can't, I can't get my eyes open. And that these disciples, they couldn't understand what Jesus was talking about. These predictions of him dying, opposition from religious leaders, rumors of plots, and now he's distressed. And this would have been incredibly confusing for his disciples and troubling for them. How on earth could the Messiah die? A king dying, that's a failed king. But perhaps the greatest temptation they faced was to abandon Jesus. With his imminent betrayal, his arrest and public shaming and crucifixion, it would all bring the spotlight on them. Would they abandon their master in his hour of trial? Matthew and Mark record that Jesus took Peter, James and John with him, leaving the eight other disciples a short distance behind in the garden. He then shared with these three that he was sorrowful, even to the point of death. And we read on the following in verse 41. It says, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he, and he knelt down. And he prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. As Jesus knelt down, Mark and Matthew record Jesus as being prostrate with his face down to the earth. This is the posture for a desperate petition to God. The usual posture for prayer in Jesus' days was standing with Arms raised up, palms facing up, even looking to the sky. But Jesus' posture communicates his intensity of feeling. He is deeply troubled. Jesus prays in this moment, arguably, the greatest prayer ever recorded. Both pleading and surrendering to the will of his Father. If you will remove this cup from me. As a man, Jesus was deeply troubled. He was appalled by what he saw coming. He wanted to be relieved of the impending suffering. But as the divine son of God, there is this deep intimacy and trust in his father. Father, but not my will, but yours be done. We see both the natures of Christ on full display in this prayer, both man and God knit together. Well, what then is this cup that Jesus wanted removed? And what is it that left Jesus in such terrible sorrow that he felt it was killing him? Could it be the physical pain of the cross? The torture of crucifixion? Could it be the pain of scourging with whips? Could it be the mental suffering of being abandoned by friends and family? Could it be betrayal and denial and desertion by his disciples? 
Could it be public shaming, mockery and abuse by his enemies? Absolutely not. It could not be any of these things. See, the truth is that thousands of others have faced physical deaths equally dreadful with steely resolve. The famous Greek philosopher Socrates was said to have taken the poison hemlock in his prison cell in Athens, recorded by Plato that it was without trembling or changing color or expression, cheerfully draining the cup. In fact, he rebuked his friends for crying and died in the words of Plato without fear, sorrow or protest. Was Socrates braver than Jesus? No, my friends, they drank very different poisons. Think about all the martyrs throughout history who have rejoiced and been glad when faced with beatings and sufferings. The apostles who rejoiced at the privilege of suffering for Jesus. Think of Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, who begged the church in Rome early in the second century not to petition for his release so he could face martyrdom for Christ. Were these people braver than Christ? Absolutely not. More Jesus had never been shaken throughout his entire public ministry, though repeatedly threatened with death. Why was he now so troubled in this moment? And John Stott puts it so eloquently, he says the following. When we turn back to the lonely figure in Gethsemane, Olive Orchard, prostrate, sweating, overwhelmed with grief and dread, begging, if possible, to be spared the drinking of the cup. The martyrs were joyful, but he was sorrowful. They were eager, but he was reluctant. How can we compare them? How could have they gained their inspiration from him if he faltered when they did not? In that case, the cup from which he drank was something different. It symbolized neither the physical pain of being flogged and crucified, nor the mental distress of being despised and rejected even by his own people, but rather the spiritual agony of bearing the sins of the world. In other words, of enduring the divine judgment that those sins deserved. You see, the, the cup is an Old Testament metaphor that refers to someone's destiny. It could be a destiny of blessing. Psalm 23, 5, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. It could be a destiny of salvation. I will lift up the cup of salvation. I will call on the name of the Lord. But in this case, it was a cup of wrath. Isaiah 51, 17, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath. Jesus clearly taught that his cup, his destiny, was to pay for the sins of the world upon the cross. And Matthew chapter 26 records what happened in that meal just previously. And it says that Jesus took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, Jesus had just been teaching in the upper room that his death, symbolized by the pouring out of his blood, would be for forgiveness. 
And the obvious question that I asked at the beginning is this. How could our forgiveness be achieved by simply dying? How does that lead to forgiveness? See, at the cross, God would treat Jesus as being guilty of all of our sins and punish him for them. The sins of all of God's people, past, present, and future, placed upon him. 700 years earlier, in the words of Isaiah, the prophet, he says, looking forward to Jesus in Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God laid upon Jesus all of our sins and failings and punished him as though he was guilty of all of them upon the cross. See, God is a loving Father who loves His Son through the Holy Spirit. God has existed eternally like this. He is a loving relationship. God in His essence is love. He eternally has existed as a loving relationship. A billion years ago, He was a loving relationship. A billion years before the same. And He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, to rescue humanity from their rebellion against Him. Born of the Virgin Mary, he became a man, fully a man, and permanently joined himself to us. And for all eternity, God had been three persons in a loving relationship. But upon the cross, the Father would pour out not his love, but his anger upon the divine Son for all of our sins. See, the truth is that the closer you get in a relationship the more pain you experience when it's damaged. You know, if you have a falling out with your mum's former neighbour who you never see, probably won't hurt that much. But if you have a falling out with your best friend or with a sibling or a spouse, it's far more painful. Imagine what Jesus was about to endure on the cross. What Jesus saw was that his father was about to heap upon him the sins of the entire world. The loving one he had eternally trusted would pour out his anger for the sins of the world upon him on the cross. From eternity he had been my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But on the cross he would be You thief, you murderer, you sexual abuser, you cheat, you liar, you drunkard, you adulterer, you idol worshipper, you are ruthless, you are heartless, you deceiver of children, oppressing the poor, exploiting the weak. And just the thought of what Jesus is about to endure leads him in his humanity to stumble. 
And he is in this moment wracked with fear and anxiety and temptation. And he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. The Apostle Paul writes of this moment. For our sake he made him to be sin. Who knew no sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus was completely sinless. But God treated him as though he was responsible for all of our sin. So that God might be able to forgive us and still be called fair. Just. So that for those that trust in Jesus, God sins, sees their sins as having been both committed by and paid for by the Lord Jesus upon the cross. And Jesus, knowing what would befall him, is in incomprehensible suffering. And in his humanity, he wavered. See, Jesus was a man just like us, fully a man. Limited in mind, just like us. Tempted, just like us, except without sin. The temptation of the devil was to avoid the purpose for which he had come to escape the suffering of the cross. And now as the hour of the power of darkness approaches, he faces his strongest temptation yet. And so he prays, if you are willing, take this cup from me. What beautiful, heart-filled surrender of his desires do we see in the Lord Jesus Christ, friends? But this is also what makes this prayer the greatest prayer that has ever been prayed. In that Jesus willingly submits himself to endure the greatest suffering ever seen. The wrath of God for the sins of humanity upon that cross. No one has ever had a more difficult task in submitting to the Father than our Lord Jesus. And no one has ever embraced a cost as great as his. Doesn't the Lord Jesus' example fill you, friends, with gratefulness? At what it costs him for us. Doesn't it inspire you to pray like he prayed? You know, this week I've been meditating on a question. What makes it so hard for us to pray like the Lord Jesus prayed? To pray, Lord, rescue me from this if you're willing. But most of all, not my will in this situation, but your will be done. And I think the answer is faith that the Lord's will is really good. We question If it is, that if we give him full control, the outcome will be the best. We secretly believe our will is the better. But Jesus' example here should revolutionize our prayer life. This is the heartbeat of God for us on full display right here. That the son of God would be willing to endure suffering like this for us. Not only can we have full assurance we will never have to drink the cup of God's wrath, but we can see the heart of Christ who would be willing to be so broken for us and know that that is exactly who we pray to. What better will is there to be done than his? See, Jesus didn't just teach his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. He modeled it for us in the most profound way. 
And having prayed perhaps the greatest prayer ever spoken, these next two verses seem to show Jesus in so much suffering that some of the very earliest copyists of the gospel felt uncomfortable. And Jesus is shown to be so very human in his struggle and suffering that a couple of the earliest manuscripts, they move these verses into the margins or cut them out. Read with me verse 43 and 44. It says this. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. As Jesus prays in a deep state of distress, an angel from the Lord appeared to strengthen him, aiding him to remain faithful. See, as a man, he needed his father's help to endure his greatest temptation to avoid the cross. And he prays, as he prays, his intensity of feeling doesn't subside, but rather it appears to increase. And Luke describes him as being in agony. That word means distressed and in anguish, filled with anxiety. And Mark describes him as being deeply distressed, even horror-struck. The result being his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. You know, those, though there's a medical condition where people in deep distress sweat blood, Luke appears to be using an analogy. His sweat became like. It's a word of comparison. See, Jesus' sweating was so profuse, it was like he was bleeding. And to Luke, it seems to be almost a prophetic vision of what was about to take place. James Edwards, in his commentary, says this, The most intense description of Jesus' suffering in the Gospels occurs not at Golgotha, but at Gethsemane. In his decision to submit to the Father's redemptive will. On the Mount of Olives, Jesus' soul is crucified. And on the Mount of Calvary, his body is surrendered. Friends, behold what he suffered in the garden for us. Behold his anguish, his pain, his agony to rescue us. And would that lead us to much gratefulness and praise. But not just point number one, our Lord's agony, but our second and final point, point number two, his plunge into darkness. This week I've been thinking about the Academy Award winning film, The Darkest Hour, that portrays the early days of Winston Churchill's time as Prime Minister during World War II. And then the 16th of June, 1940, Churchill described the collapse of France following the German invasion as the darkest hour in French history, as an evil empire had overtaken Paris and France. Yet they had been unwillingly thrust into the darkness as Hitler unexpectedly attacked. But this hour is different. In every instance in Luke's gospel, we see the Lord Jesus willing, in full control, As he steps toward the cross. Not only has he repeatedly taught that the cross was necessary. Not only has he foretold his betrayal by Judas. But he's even picked the place to ensure he will be found. In verse 39 as we read earlier it says they went to the Mount of Olives as was his custom. That's why this is his plunge into darkness. He was determined to go to the cross. And now that he's finished his time of prayer, it's almost like this fresh peace and resolve seems to have descended upon him. 
You know, contrast this to my unwillingness at home to even do small things. I'm noted to have a prominent sigh that I give uh, when my beautiful pregnant wife Charlotte needs something picked up from the floor. She'd be likely to hear her. <sighs> sort of speaks volumes about my willingness to love and serve. But not so with the Savior. Verse 45, read with me. It says, and when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the twelve who was leading them. And he drew near to kiss Jesus. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? The disciples are so fatigued by the emotion of this moment and their inability to understand. They keep falling asleep. In the other Gospels, we learn this happens three times. And Jesus had asked them to pray. And three times they fell asleep, unaware of what was taking place, unaware of how their Lord was suffering, and unaware that Judas was climbing the hill with a mob. And Judas leads the mob to Jesus' favorite gathering place. And he marks him out with a kiss. You might think, why was that needed? Well, it was dark and probably hard to see. Also, there was no photography in Jesus' day. The only way you could know someone's appearance is if you had physically seen them. And Luke wants you to know what a great betrayal this is. He was one of the twelve. He was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And he uses a kiss as his mark of the man. A kiss was a symbol of friendship and intimacy in Jesus' day. Jesus had earlier that evening, as Judas's friend, washed his feet. He had shared with him the Passover meal. They had sung hymns. And they would broken bread together. And even shared the cup together. And now J- Judas mocks him with a false sign of friendship. And delivers him over to be killed. The 11 disciples who are with Jesus now realize what's about to take place, that Judas has betrayed them and this crowd is here to see Jesus arrested and they draw their swords and they ask if they should attack to defend the Messiah. But Jesus had spent the previous hours on his knees in prayer and and even despite this, John one tells us one enthusiastic disciple named Peter didn't even wait for an answer. We read in verse 50 the following He says this, he says, And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said no more of this and touched his ear and healed him. Jesus, having spent all this time in prayer, is, is so calm and peaceful. John tells us that this was the servant Malchus and he would have been been screaming in agony, having his ear cut off. But Jesus, so calm and determined, after hours in prayer, had been strengthened by an angel, had faced the torment of what was to await him on the cross, and filled with the Holy Spirit, there's this sense of purpose and calm as he touches this man's ear and it's healed instantly. And the question we're left to ask is, what madness possessed this mob that they continued to arrest him? A great miracle had just been performed. More than that, in John's gospel, we learn that Jesus questioned the crowd saying, 
Who do you seek? And, and when Jesus replies, I am he, they're so awestruck, they fall to the ground. Yet they continue to arrest him. What madness possessed them that they still bound him with ropes? How was it not obvious to them that they stood before the Son of God, the God-man maker of heaven and earth? The one who appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, called Moses in the burning bush, part of the Red Sea, spoke on Mount Sinai, anointed King David, and filled the temple of Solomon with his presence. They should have bowed down in worship. This is the one they had devoted their lives to studying. And yet we read the following in verse 52. Then Jesus said to his chief, to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus is saying, I've had a public ministry teaching in broad daylight every day. There's no need to treat me like a dangerous criminal. You're only doing this in the middle of the night with swords because you lack courage to do it in the middle of the day before the people. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is your hour. Reminds me of Aslan in C.S. Lewis's famous book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, how he walked into the night to willingly be mocked and killed by the white witch. And so we see Jesus stepping forward walking to the cross. And Matthew writes that at this, all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus is left alone in the middle of the night with the disciple who betrayed him and a mob baying for his blood. But Jesus' words, this is your hour, reveals a deeper truth, doesn't it? This time of great evil and darkness had been set already by God. It was for a limited time only. Soon it would be the hour for his resurrection and the hour for his declaration as the son of God in power. Doesn't Christ's willingness to plunge into darkness fill you with a deep sense of gratitude? There's no sighing like me from the Lord Jesus. He is deeply resolved and strengthened. His torment reveals the horror of our sin and failing, but it reveals the depths of his love and compassion for us as well. In a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to start our baptisms. And you're going to hear how each of these people has been transformed by Jesus' work in their life. They've come to see that he really is the Lord and Savior of the whole world. They've been moved by what he suffered in the garden and on the cross, and they've given their lives to him. You know, if you don't know Jesus, my hope is that today would be another point in your story and you'd respond to his call. You see, without the suffering of the Lord Jesus, we must stand before God's judgment alone. But when we put our trust in him, Jesus takes all of our sins and failings upon himself. So friends, regardless of how we come, for all of us, My hope is that we would experience heartfelt gratitude for our Lord Jesus as he plunged into darkness for us. You know, as we close out this message, I want to end with a story from this week because I think it's so fitting to finalize and describe what is happening in this moment. It comes from a well-known pastor in Sovereign Grace, and he wrote this article just this week. His name is Tim Shorey. 
He's a pastor in the US. And this article he uh, wrote is entitled, Am I Going Through Hell? Uh, Tim writes the following. He says, I've been diagnosed with stage four cancer. And my prognosis is grim. It's a terrible situation and I don't want to sugarcoat it. Cancer is awful. But based on what I've heard other people in circumstances similar to mine say, some might proclaim that my cancer is putting me through hell. While meaning no offense to these sympathetic friends, I want to set the record straight. Yes, I'm writing this from a furnace of sorts, but no, I'm not going through hell. There's a reason we never hear anyone say, I'm going through Auschwitz or all Buchenwald broke loose. Or it's as hot as a Nazi oven out there. The reasons behind these words are too real and terrible to invoke an expression of less severe experiences. Likewise, when other experiences on earth can be devastatingly brutal, they're not hell. Pain in this life is real and often horrifying. But given what God says about hell, might I suggest that as bad as it sometimes gets in this life, there's no hell on earth for you and me. Compared to hell, the worst moments on earth, including my stage four apparently terminal cancer, are but fleeting sorrows. Yes, I'm going through severe affliction right now. Yes, I know how tormenting life can feel. Yes, Galen and I have wept many, many bitter tears. Yes, we've endured agonizing seasons and understand why people with no knowledge of what the Bible says about the real hell might wonder if life on earth isn't. But I've chosen to preserve the solemn and horrible meaning of the word by saying emphatically that while I know pain and sorrow, I have in no way been through hell. I'm not going through it now, nor will I ever go through it. And while I fully expect that my life is going to get much harder in the next few years unless God heals me, that increased hardship will only prove that I might feel cursed without being cursed. My cancer may get very, very, very bad, But no matter how bad it gets, it won't be as bad as damnation or hell. There's only one who can truly say, I have been through hell on earth. His name is Jesus, the eternal son of God, who became man precisely for that purpose. Would you join with me as we pray together? Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for the example of our Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. We cannot comprehend what it cost him to bear our sins upon that cross. We cannot even begin to comprehend the agony he felt in the garden as he fell upon his knees and surrendered it all to you. But I pray this morning that whatever we're walking through, whatever the season may be, we might look to Jesus and see that we have much to be grateful for because of what he endured for us. You are worthy of all our prayer, Lord, and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.